especially grateful to be jumping back into the word of God this week as we will be in the book of Romans as we've been continuing through. Now, if you've been with us during Bible study, you know that we've been talking about what happens after we die. And we talked about how that also shapes the way that we live. And this past week, we talked about God's will for us to be happy and to thrive and flourish in him in this world. Now, I do realize that that is a little bit different than sometimes what we hear in the prosperity gospel, where they think that it's God's will for us to be rich and to be successful and to be famous. But what we do believe is that God has created us all to flourish. And in that, he's created us to live for him, for his glory, and to take joy in the lives that we live. But most importantly, take joy in him. And so connecting that all together, if you remember last week, we talked about having an inheritance and this inheritance that is being beautifully stored up for us, of which we hope to seek and take the acquisition of it. We pray that we will soon receive it. But knowing that we have that inheritance, it has given our lives such a richer meaning and purpose, knowing that we have a place to go gives this life even more meaning. And so today's message, in the text that we're looking at, Paul is actually bridging what he said together. So versus what he said last week and then what we're going to hear today, he's bridging these things together. Now, if you know anything about bridges, some bridges are narrow and a little rickety and wood and you're a little nervous going over them, but then there are some bridges that connect large bodies of water and they're massive and they're, they're really sound in their infrastructure. And the way Paul is bridging this text together today is one of those kind of bridges. This passage is robust and Paul is connecting two large and important bodies together so that we can see where we need to go from here. Now, it is one of the most easily communicated messages in the Bible, but it is equally as important and weighty as it is simple. So what is his overall point? His overall point is this. I'm giving it to you early. It's not Bible studies. I can go ahead and tell you. His overall point is this. We have peace in Christ. We have hope in glory Therefore, we have joy in our suffering. That's his point. We have peace in Christ, hope and glory, and joy in suffering. I think that this can all be summed up by saying that as Christians, we are called to have a peace that doesn't exist outside of saving faith. And it is a peace that transcends all of time, all of our circumstances, and even this world. And so we're going to look, go with me if you will, to Romans chapter 5. We're beginning in the very first verse of Romans chapter 5. And again, this is a, an easily communicated message, but it is going to be really important for us today, and I guarantee it will reshape what we think about the life that we live. It says, therefore, since we have been, other word, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more we shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to jump into the word of God again this week, there is such rich truth for us today. And it's all going to center around the fact that we have peace with you. Those of us who believe have a peace, a peace that Jesus described surpasses understanding. God, there are some of us in here who are believers, who are wrestling, having peace in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, in our marriages. But God, what gives us peace is that if we have peace with you, we can have peace with anything else around us. Help us see that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so remember, when we're reading Romans, it's, it's always kind of hard to communicate because we're looking at these different chapter breaks. But you got to remember that when Paul is originally writing this letter to the Roman church that he had never been to, that he, not, he had not established, there are no intended letter breaks, right? So he is writing one continuous message. He is literally writing a letter. And so we have to work around a little bit to make it sound like what he intended for it to actually sound like. He is connecting what we saw at the end of chapter 4 with the beginning of chapter 5. And he closes out by saying in chapter 4 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and for our justification. And then he says, therefore... Because of this, since we have been declared righteous by our faith, the thesis of today's sermon, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. First, Paul says that we have peace with God. And I could actually probably spend the entirety of today's sermon on just that point right there. So I will ask and answer this initial question. Write it down. What kind of peace should I have? 
What kind of peace should I have? Paul is actually here saying two things in one, and they both have a huge impact on how we live. Because I have the pronunciation if I am a Christian because I have been pronounced innocent on my account, innocent of my sins, I have peace with God. And the core of that is, yes, I have peace, but at the root of it, it's because I have peace with God. If we have peace with God as a result of our salvation, then that means that we were not saved just to live for ourselves. If we have peace with God as a result of our salvation, then it is impossible for us not to be at peace with him. But what it's also saying is, there was a time, if you now have peace, that you didn't have peace. This is the time before I knew the Lord, and while I may have enjoyed the life that I was living, while I may have felt invigorated by the life that I was living, the reality is, in terms of me and God, there was no peace. There was no peace. Now, I know some of you may flash back and like, I felt like I had a lot of peace. But sometimes we can confuse pleasure with peace. But when you think about the life that you live and when you think about God, you can probably admit that you did not feel at peace with him. As good as what you did may have felt. This doesn't mean that God was necessarily causing us to be disrupted in our lives and not have peace. But it's, it's like this. Maybe some of you can relate. I remember when I was a child, all my teachers knew my parents because Jasmine was older than me. So they knew the numbers. They had them on speed dial. And Jasmine was a good child. I was not. And so because of this, the biggest threat that I would hear whenever I did anything is, I'm going to call your mama. Happy Mother's Day. And whenever they said that, I didn't know that they were really just threatening me. And so quite literally, for the rest of that day, I had no peace. Because all that was leveraging my belief was that my mother is going to tear me up when I get home. And so I would get in the car. Y'all know how it is. I'm trying to be nice. Hey, how you doing? Good. All right, okay. Seemed like a little peace. But see, I knew my mother. She could feign peace now for a whooping later. And so my concern was, was she storing up wrath for me? And so we would go home. She cooking. Okay, she cooking. Eating. Everything seems fine. But I tell you, every time the phone would ring, my fear was, there they go. They calling. So every glimpse of peace I had was taken away because I remembered what had been said. And y'all, I'm going to tell you like this, because I knew my mother well. I couldn't even sleep in peace because I was awakened many a night by leather to my skin. But the point is, is, she didn't do anything to make me not be at peace with her. 
It was my own wrongdoing that created this veil between she and I. Even if I thought she was unaware of it, my fear was I have no peace because you're going to get me. And unfortunately, while many of us may feel good in what we do, when we think about God, we know inevitably there is no peace with God. And it is our fear that when we're outside of saving faith that he's going to get us. And really, y'all, I'm telling you, that is the worst way to think about God. And so what we have here is significant. This peace that Paul is referring to here is not simply an inner peace. I don't want you to think that today. It is not just simply, I feel peace on the inside, therefore I am at peace. This is not a peace working on you on the inside, but the peace that Paul is referring to is quite literally a change in status. In our sins, we were at odds with God. And Paul says, when we were enemies, Christ reconciled us to himself. We were at war with God, meaning there was no peace treaty between us and God. And so when he says we now have peace with God, he is not just saying something magical has happened on the inside of you, but he says your status with God has changed. I think the only way I can describe that is that it is comparable to the peace that a student feels when they walk across that stage, no longer a student, but a graduate. The stress of being a student is replaced with the peace of being a graduate. It is like anyone in this room who has ever paid anything off to a creditor. That change from debtor to owner brings a sense of peace knowing that there will not need to be any more payments made. Likewise, Paul is not saying that this is some inner peace that we need to convince ourselves that we have. It is literally, actually peace, the peace of having been reconciled with God. It is the peace of having the debts of your sins paid off. So let's really think about this. Think about what you felt like if you ever paid off that car. Not only is there a change in status, but now you can even reallocate some of the funds that you were using for that car for stuff you really want to use it on. With us, not only is there a change in our status, but there is a reallocation of how we use our lives and serve Christ. The weight of our sin and our desire to be fulfilled by our sins put us in places we know we didn't need to be. It put us in situations we know we shouldn't have been in. But now that my status has changed, the places I would have been, I'm not there anymore. There has been a reallocation. 
What I used to like, what I used to desire, what used to please me is fulfilled now by a superior pleasure in Christ. A peace, a joy, a contentment, a fulfillment that I couldn't get out of any of that stuff out there because if it had worked, I wouldn't be here. And let me tell you something. For any of us who have gotten out of debt, you don't get out of debt to go get in more debt. You don't pay off a car and say, all right, let me go trade this in for $200 and go get another one. I did that once. You don't pay some off in order to be in more debt. What happens when you are free from that debt, you walk around in the peace of having no debt. Y'all, if we know that our account has been satisfied with Christ, that our sins have been paid, then we are not going to go out and accrue more sin debt. We love freedom too much for that. And as opposed to being the slaves that we were to our sins, we are now slaves to Christ and his righteousness. And this, by the way, is so radically different than what we hear from the Buddhists or what we hear in our world. They say that you must look deep within yourself. You must isolate yourself to achieve this inner peace. You must find fulfillment and peace in yourself. But what this says What the Bible says is that because you have been granted a change of status, peace now works from the inside out. But you're not the source of that peace. God is. God is the source of that peace. And that should be an encouragement to us because that means that we don't have to trick ourselves into believing we have peace. If you are saved, you have peace with God. And let me tell you like this. If you are at odds with everybody in the world, if you are at peace with God, you are at peace. (laughs) You are at peace. Everybody in the world can be angry at you, can be talking about you, can be hating you, can be disliking you, can be lying about you. But if I have received peace from God, I can and will be at peace with everything else around me. And now it makes sense. Of course, I can strive to be at peace with all men because look at what Jesus did to be at peace with me. I can go have that uncomfortable conversation. I can hold my tongue back. I cannot do that thing I want to do. I can do that thing I didn't want to do because if he did that for me so that I can have peace with him, what must I do to have peace with those around me? It's in larger ways that we realize. And and John says this, by the way. He says, if you who have peace with God and say, I love God, but hate your neighbor that you do not have peace with, you are a liar. In other words, you can't be 
effectively in and at peace with God and not be seeking to be in and at peace with those around you. Amen. Amen. This peace transcends just a change of status, but also it changes our behavior. And this is a real thing. And how do I know that he means that this also changes our behavior? Because he says that we now stand in this grace. What does that look like? Well, Jesus describes it for us in a parable in Matthew 18 and 21. It says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father would do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus says here that we must stand in grace. It means that you are quite literally in a posture of grace. What does that mean? It means that if you have been free from your debts, then it has to reshape how you live, how you forgive, how you show grace. And do you know what that does for you? James says it brings you more grace. James says that God opposes the proud, but to the humble, to the loving, to the forgiving, he gives more grace. It does not surprise me that the more people like think that they need to get back at other people, the more people think that they need to give other people what they deserve, the more miserable those same people become. This posture of grace should position us to find more happiness and joy in our current lives. 
And I don't know about you, but it takes a lot of work to stay mad at somebody. And to this, Paul says that we rejoice. Now, in one sense, we rejoice in our hope of God's glory, as we discussed last week. But he also says that we rejoice in our suffering. So that brings us to our second and probably the most practical question. How do we rejoice in our suffering? This is one of those great Christian mysteries. How do we maintain our joy in the midst of our suffering in this world? Well, Paul actually points to the result of suffering for the reason that we should have joy. He says that it produces in the life of the Christian endurance, which produces character, which then produces hope. This is akin to the athlete who disciplines themselves. They will watch what they eat. They will exercise. They will get good cardio in. And they do this all in anticipation of this rapturous moment of joy and triumph when they win. It is the joy that they have set before themselves for them to find joy in their painful discipline. In the same way, as we go through our sufferings, we should look with anticipation at what that suffering is actually doing for us. What suffering is actually doing to us. What suffering is actually doing through us. Our sufferings are producing endurance in us. And I don't know if we realize just how valuable endurance actually is. But if we be honest, it is often the thing that separates most people from becoming who they want to be and not. People who lack endurance lack the stick to itness. If it is one thing you should know about me, it is that while I fancy myself an athlete, I am pretty bad at basketball, like hilariously bad at basketball. But I play a lot of kids at the school, and it's no big deal. You know, I'm a 5'6", 31-year-old man beating up on high schoolers in basketball. That's not really anything to brag about, but... Most of them are genuinely better than me at basketball. They've got more skills. They've got more ability. They've got more talent. They understand the game better. But there's one little thing that they lack. It's endurance. I get out there, and it's like the Energizer Bunny. I will not quit until I win. And they're huffing and puffing, and all that talent, all that skill goes out the door when I can just outlast you. And you know what? Because of that, I don't lose often. And all the kids, you know, they say, you'll try hard, you'll try hard. But what I learned is that kids, because they have experienced a little bit less in life than I have, they don't tend to have a lot of endurance. How do we build endurance in life? How do we have hope for tomorrow? How are we bringing wisdom to our children? 
because we've endured. How do you build endurance? You endure. As the Bible says, but as a good soldier, as one honoring to God, you don't build endurance by going through nothing. You build endurance by going through stuff, but seeing the faithfulness of God rain down on you and know if I made it through today, when tomorrow comes, I'll make it through that by the grace of God. Y'all, endurance is an important ability that comes in our sufferings. Life has taught those of us in this room who have lived long enough that it is about those who endure. One thing I've learned is that it is not about my theological prowess. It is not about how smart I am. It is not about how good I preach. It will be the wisdom of older men who will help me get through the most difficult days. It is those who who have endured who will endure. If it is marriage, many people don't endure. They quit Or in that job, many people don't endure, they fold. But those who endure don't just do it for endurance sake, but they do it because it produces character. One of the most consistent anomalies that I notice working, even in a private school with Christian people, is that the younger the person is, the more they complain about everything. The younger they are, and for many of the elementary teachers, this is their first job. I mean, every little thing they complain about. But what I've noticed is, I mean, I used to flip burgers. I used to sell shoes. I used to be a teller. And in almost all of those situations, those were not Christian environments. And so half the things that they're complaining about I don't even think about. Because when I had to go through those jobs I hated, what did it do? I endured and it built character. And what I notice in many of people in the world today is that there is just an unwillingness to endure anything that we think we shouldn't have to. Any offense any disagreement, any little thing. It is what Jesus describes as straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. You you strain every little thing because you don't have the endurance it takes and you miss those opportunities to build character. And that is a practical piece of advice. Lacking endurance tends to lead to a lack of character. One of the most impactful interviews that I've ever listened to in my life is one that Maya Angelou did with a British journalist in bringing up her youth and how she was sexually abused. He asked her how she wasn't bitter. And she said that bitterness is like, cancer. I mean, you can try to do 
what you want, but it just eats at the host. It doesn't do anything to the person you're angry at. And so her response shocked him, and he mentioned to her, she mentioned to him rather, that having been abused like she was had actually enriched and colored her life. Now, she said, obviously, I don't mean that people need to be abused in this way in order for them to have this same enrichment. But she says, but if the awful thing befalls you, you take that which is bad and you use it as motivation to do that which is good. And she mentioned that as a result of what happened to her, she had built several institutions that were created to protect other young women from being abused the way that she was. As we endure, we should endure with hope and joy that God is molding us and producing better character in us. It, is, it now makes sense to me when the Bible says that Jesus went to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. For a long time, I really didn't understand that. Was he manufacturing joy? Was he pretending to have joy? But now I understand. The joy was the freedom that he knew he was given all of those who would believe. And while he would have to endure this pain, the joy of believers like us being able to congregate and sing praises to his name and live out our relationship, it brought him joy to go to the cross. Doing the will of the Father brought him joy. And Paul says, all this leads to us having a hope, a hope that will not be put to shame. And our hope is placed in a man who did what almost no one else would do, according to Paul. He died for bad men and women. But in doing that, we are reconciled in right relationship with God. We are now at peace with God. And this is what the parable of the prodigal son tells us. Though the son had forsaken the father, though the son had chosen to take his inheritance, when he comes back to him, the father happily and joyfully receives him. He reconciles with him, and he is now at peace with him. When we are at peace with God, we have hope. And that hope gives us joy. And when we have joy in Christ, when we live out joy in Christ, everything we do is worship to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word today. God, we thank you that you have changed our status. You have renewed who we are. You have redeemed us and you have reconciled us, Lord, in right relationship with you. And so, God, we thank you. But, Lord, in having that change of status, that also changes how we think and how we live. God, many of us 
may not have peace in areas that you have called us to have peace in. Some of us in this room may not be striving to have that peace that we should have. But God, if we have had a change in status, if we say we know and love you and are at peace with you, let us also live that out and be at peace with those around us as well. And that peace which gives us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.